the morning and you feel just a little bit lost in life, well, I can tell you that you need information from a reliable source. And it's only the Word of God is the only source. This is our source. This is our life. This is the words of life revealed from the very mouth and heart of God given to us. And it is our source. That's what this is. And we're in a teaching series that began just last week called What is the Gospel? And so we're looking at this for several weeks and thinking, really? Yes. As a faith family, we have to understand what the gospel is and why it matters. It's not just theoretical. It impacts all of life. And we'll be looking at how the gospel of Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection impacts every single aspect of our lives. We must truly live gospel-centered lives. And as a church, that is our aim, that we be truly gospel-centered. And so today we're going to look at a very simple, yet very profound, very powerful way to learn the gospel by using four words, just four words. So the gospel in four words, what we're looking at today, and we're going to look at it in the book of Romans. Now, I could take many, many months to look at the book of Romans. We won't do that today. We'll do it much quicker than that. And what we're doing is we're trying to find the gospel in four words in the first few chapters in the book of Romans. Now, in, in case you're not really aware, the book of Romans is actually a letter written around 57 A.D. by a man named Paul. He was an apostle, a leader in the church called by Christ himself. And he wrote a letter to the church, much like this one, the church of the Emerson Park Zoo. Well, there was a church in Rome. And he wrote them a letter. Now, what's interesting is Paul had never actually been to that church. He didn't know them personally. He had never actually been to their, their gathering. So he didn't know them, but he longed to meet them. He wants to spend time with them. He wants to encourage them. All this, by the way, is in the first 15 verses of the book described them. And he yearns to go and preach the gospel to them. And so he gives them a very step-by-step approach to what is the gospel in the book of Romans. He wants to make sure that these believers know the gospel. Now, they're believers already, but he says, I want to preach it to you again so that you can truly live this out in a very systematic, step-by-step way. And so verse 16, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, very clearly tell us what the gospel is. And these two verses serve as the thesis statement for the whole book. It is basically the main idea for the whole book is these two verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so you see here embedded these four key words, and then it's expanded throughout the rest of the book. The four words are God, man, Christ, response. Those are the four words that we must learn. We must memorize these four words because it will change your life if you do and know what they mean. God, man, Christ, and response. So let's look at the first one, God. Who God is, who the Bible says God is, and why it matters. So look at the very next verse, 
Verse 18, he begins describing the gospel with the first key word, God. And here's what he says, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, some of you are already thinking, whoa, what is this? The wrath of God? I thought God was loving. I thought God was very kind and, and patient. What is this God being angry, God having wrath? What is this? Well, the truth is that a lot of us, if we're really honest, we think of God kind of like a really old, loving grandfather. We think that he's like just a grandpa. He's a papa. That's what he is. You see, he's a little bit old, a little bit out of touch with the 21st century world. He doesn't really understand this new modern world. But he's very nice, and he likes to give you things. He's very understanding. Grandpa will never judge you. Grandpa is going to love you and accept you just how you are. A little confused about how the world works today. He doesn't understand technology very well because he is old, you know, Grandpa. But he's sweet. And he's very kind and calm. And you want to go to the backyard and visit with him as he works in the garden and hang out with him in the garden every now and then, because however much time you give him, he's happy with that. And we have this view of God as being in a certain way that is just foreign to the scriptures. That's not who God is. The Bible says, we just read, that he has wrath that's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, verses 19 and 20. and says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. See, I'm going to give you two words to describe who God is, because there have been many, many books written, volumes and volumes on the nature of God. And if we're going to be talking about God, man, Jesus and responds and do it all in a half hour or less. Well, I clearly can't give you everything there's to know about God. I'll give you two words described in here that give you an idea of who God is. And the two words are righteous creator. That's who God is at his heart, at his essence. God is the righteous creator. We just read in verses 16 and 17 that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So the gospel itself reveals that God is righteous. And we just read in verse 20 that he is a creator and he is powerful and he has eternal and divine nature. And so he is righteous and he is creator. Now it says that his wrath is against sin. God is personally angry. I mean, think God is not happy. He, it says that his wrath, he is angry at sin. You think, well, why is God so mad? What's his problem? Why don't he just build a bridge and get over it? Why, why is God so wrathful? Because God is righteous. Because God is righteous. It says that his righteousness is revealed through the gospel. His character is right and pure and holy and excellent. It's just. And so God is holy and justice defines who he is. And so God 
must be understood as being holy. Now, many people will say, well, okay, well, yes, God is good. No one's denying his purity and his excellence and his, his moral, just eternal nature. No one is denying that, but there are many people, and you know who they are. You work with them that live in this region of the world that will say, yes, God is good, but he is very loving, and so God can forgive without requiring a payment for sin. And so they argued that Jesus did not die on the cross, that he was taken up before he died, and they argued that God does not require any kind of payment to forgive sin. God is God. He is above justice as we understand it. And so therefore, God can just forgive without requiring any kind of payment. Now, I want to come back to Romans, but just for a second, turn back to Exodus. Exodus 34. And if you don't know the context there, it's the prophet Moses. And he is on a very important mountain called Mount Sinai. And this is the mountain where God gives him the Ten Commandments, the rest of the law. So God is revealing who he is to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8, this is what is going on. This is Moses. He's writing this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is important. But who will by no means clear the guilty. And he keeps on describing this, and the passage goes on, but for lack of time, this is important. God is what? Gracious, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. This is true. God is love. And this passage clearly describes that God is love. But this passage also shows us that he is holy and righteous. And justice defines who he is. He says that he will by no means forgive or clear the guilty. He doesn't just ignore sin. You see, what happens is I think we think of God as a janitor. They're like, what's a janitor? A guy who cleans offices or houses, cleans the floors, cleans the bathrooms, takes out the trash. And so we see God as a janitor. Now, the problem is that we see God as a, as a very lazy janitor. A janitor who is lazy does what? Well, he doesn't clean. He's taking a nap in the, in the closet. A lazy janitor doesn't really care that it's dirty. And his janitor doesn't want to clean the bathrooms because, well, he's lazy. And so we think that God is like this janitor who doesn't want to address the issue. He doesn't want to clean. God is not a lazy janitor that ignores the dirt and the filth. God is righteous and he is holy and he will not ignore the dirt. He will not ignore the sin. He can't do so. If God ignores our sin, if God forgives sin without requiring a payment, then he would cease to be just. He would cease to be holy. He would violate his very own nature. And so God then chooses that he must demand the payment for sin because God must be consistent with who he is. He can't go against. He can't violate his nature. And so God being love, which he is, and compassionate, 
does not cancel out his justice and his holiness. So he is righteous, and he's the all-powerful creator, and so therefore he does demand for a payment. This is bad news because number two, in, in our four key words, God, righteous creator, number two, man. Well, who is man? Well, if you keep reading, it describes now man. We, we looked at number one, which is God. Now he turns attention to man. Here's what he says, very next verse, verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He continues to describe it, but just briefly here. He says that humans, he says that we did not give thanks to God. We did not honor God. Our, our thinking is futile. Our hearts are darkened. And so he's describing a doctrine that is referred to as total depravity, which simply means that humans are polluted. We're corrupted by sin. And you see here, it's not just our body. It says even our minds, our thinking, our whole being from our body, mind, soul, as a holistic human, we are corrupted. Are, we are infected by sin. Now, this does not mean that every single thing you do or say is sin. I'm not saying that. God has what's called common grace. But it says that we have a bent, a disposition, a propensity. We have an inclination to reject God's authority. We want to be God. We want to be in charge. We saw that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God, and so we resist God's authority, and so our whole being is selfish. And what happens is I desire to be in control so that I can pursue my own selfish desires, my own selfish pleasures. Now, the Jewish audience reading this would have said, that's crazy, Paul is talking to the pagan Gentiles, to the Greeks that indulge in all kinds of sin. We're Jews. We're religious. We go to church or to synagogue, if you will, back in their day. We're, we love God. We're not those crazy pagan Gentiles that do awful things. We're religious people. We're good people. Paul, you're not talking to us. Would have been the Jews thinking. Much like today, there are many people that would say, no, well, okay, sure, we make mistakes, but that's why we have religion, to help us, help us along the way, to, to be better people, to learn how to be better people. And so there are many religions under the sun that exist. What does Paul say? Well, he continues in chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 describing humanity as being sinful, and then he addresses the Jews and says, and you're no better in chapter 2. He says, you religious with all of your hypocrisy, you, you judge the Gentiles and you're just as guilty on the inside as the Gentiles are. And he says, your, your religion isn't helping you. And then if, if you jump to chapter 3, where he's continuing talking about man, talks about God, and then man, chapters 1 and 2, chapter 3, talking about man more and how we are sinful. And here's what he says in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He says, what about us Jews? We're religious. Are we, are we better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now this is some bad news. Because God is holy and he is righteous and he's powerful. And we're seeing, number two, man, man is convicted. Man is sinful. And we don't pursue God if we're really honest with ourselves. We are selfish. That's who we are on the inside. And God's word rightly describes who we are on the inside. Have you ever gotten a phone call where you got bad news? I mean, I'm talking some bad news where the phone rings and you hear this is, there was a car accident, and your son or your daughter was in the vehicle. Or the doctor calls you and says, you have cancer. Or your spouse says, I want a divorce. Or you expect that phone call where you got the job, and the call is, I'm sorry, but you didn't get the job. We've all received bad news in our lives, and we right here are reading the ultimate eternal bad news for humans. Yet, when we hear bad news, you know what I want to hear? I want to hear the word, but. I want to hear the word, but. I want to hear someone say, your son was in a car accident, but no one got hurt. You have cancer, but it's easily treatable. That's, uh, my heart yearns to hear the solution, the good news, whenever I get the bad news. Say, well, what am I to do with this bad news? I want to know that there is a solution, that there is hope. And God gives us this eternal but. And he says, there is bad news. We are condemned and we don't deserve forgiveness. We can't earn it. No one does good. Our hearts are inclined to be haters of God, he says in chapter 1 to be evil and disobedient and to profane and to be lazy and so on. This long list of sins that all of us have, but there's good news. And so you have God, righteous creator, man, sinner, three, Jesus. God, man, number three is Christ. What do we see about Christ? Let's read it in the same chapter, chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Verse 4 is the but. He says, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. There is so much to look at here in just one minute. He says that we have all been justified. We'll look at that more in a few weeks in detail. He's used the word propitiation. That's a huge word that just simply means that Jesus died in your place and he satisfied the wrath of God that was holy and just. And he said that this shows God's righteousness. You see, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, fully man, yet fully God. And he was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus solved the dilemma. What is the dilemma? You, you just read in Exodus 34 that God is compassionate, slow to anger, and graceful, right? So he's good and patient and kind, and so he's love. And when he's that word to summarize love, but he's also holy. And so he is love, but he's also, he has justice. 
So the, the dilemma is, how can a good God who loves you let you go to heaven? How, how can he do that and still maintain his justice? Well, there's news. He won't let you go to heaven because if he does, it will violate his justice. God had a dilemma. It was God's dilemma. And so what did he do? He solved it in the person of Jesus Christ who was crucified in your place and in my place. And so thus God showed his love by sending Jesus and he maintained his justice by having a payment, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth paid the price. So someone had to pay and Jesus paid and were justified by his work. So that's what Jesus did. And he resurrected. He's alive today. And so he offers us hope. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin. And so we do have an eternal hope. And so God, righteous creator, man, condemned sinner, Jesus, redeemer, savior. Number four, God, man, Jesus. The fourth one, response. There has to be a response. If you look in the very next chapter, verses, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Glory be to God. See, it says that we can't earn it. It says if you could do enough good to earn your salvation, then God would owe you something. It wouldn't be a gift. He'd be paying you your wage. Because those of you that are employees, you know this. You go to work, you work hard, and your, your boss owes you your pay. He's in debt to you, so he pays you what you earn, your wage. Is God in debt to you and me? Does God owe us anything? This week in our homerooms, we launched a study called The Gospel Project. We're all doing this together. And in our discussion this week in our home group, we, we talked about this very issue. And there was, there was a section in, in the study that was really helpful. I want to read that to you. It says, when we begin our obedience, so working to earn salvation. So we, when we begin with obedience, instead of God's blessing, we invert the gospel. We begin to think that somehow we can put God in our debt. If we do enough good works, God will bless us. This is humanity's futile attempt to keep control. We'd rather think God owes us. As long as we think someone owes us, we maintain a sense of control. Grace, in contrast, is scary. We owe him everything, our very lives. God will not be in debt to anyone. We are in debt to him. He did it. He sent his son he paid the price, and we don't work, it says in verse 4 and 5. We don't work. We simply respond with faith. And so Jesus said this just beautifully in Mark 1.15. He's preaching, and Jesus says, The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so because I have come, I am here. Respond to me, the gospel, with faith and repentance. Jesus' words echoed here by Paul. We must Repent and believe. That is the response to the gospel. And so what is repentance? Repentance is you change your mind and you agree with what God says about you. So God says about you that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner, and that we need his grace. 
And so we agree with him. We turn away. And faith is the assurance of what you can't see. So we have a complete trust. And so we cast our lives on the mercy of a holy God. Have you ever responded to the gospel? I mean, really, have you ever responded to it with wholehearted trust and repentance? If you haven't, you can do so today. But before we close, I want to give you a couple of minutes. We've been talking about applying the gospel to all of life. Last week, we applied the gospel to your identity. We said, how does the gospel change how you see yourself, your your perception of you? We talked about how the gospel will change that. Today, we want to apply this gospel of God, man, Jesus, response. We want to apply it to our behavior. How does the gospel change how we act? Our behavior must be impacted by the gospel. Well, how does that work? How does this message actually change how I behave? Well, first you have to understand this about your behavior. Your behavior is not random. Never. Humans don't act arbitrarily. We don't do things randomly. We, everything that we do is fueled by something. And that word is desire. Our desires deep in our hearts are what fuels what we do. And so I can see someone's foolish decisions or wasting their money or being a bad husband or, or being a lazy wife or whatever. So, so you, you, you can see behavior, but what you can't see is the motives. That's much deeper. But it's these motives, these desires that fuel how we behave and what we do, how we act. Now, if you read on your own time, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, you know what it describes in verses 26 and 27? It says that he will give us a new heart. He says that he will take the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. You see, This is the way it works with most people. They just go after religion, and they think that religion will change them, but that just doesn't work. And I'm going to show you how I'm giving you an example by talking about a balloon. You're like, yes, a balloon. Picture a balloon, all right? There's two ways to get a balloon to stay up, to float. One way is you can use your breath, and you can blow up the balloon, right? Now, will that balloon float by itself? No. What do you have to do to make that balloon float? You have to keep hitting it, right? Keep pounding it, hitting it up, hitting it up, hitting it up. And that makes the balloon sit up in the air. Well, that's religion. You keep getting pounded. Do this. Stop doing that. Do more of this. You got to do more prayers. You have to do more of this. Give more. Stay more busy. Do more. And, And pastors are good at this. We smack you on Fridays. Come here. Bang, smack. Give more. Bang, smack. Get in the home group. Bang, smack, go serve in the kids' area. We need you. We use guilt, and we motivate people through this religious activity, and we just, we're just smacking people to keep them afloat. And we smack ourselves, and we actually think that by having this activity and having more religion, that somehow that's going to change our hearts. But the Bible does not talk about religion or doing more it says, I don't, I don't need better behavior. You need a new heart. You see, the second way that a balloon will flow is not by smacking it with your own breath, your own power. Fill it with helium. 
And guess what it'll do all by itself? Naturally, it'll flow. You see, the gospel, the gospel is the helium in your soul that will help you reach and soar to new heights of purity, of spirituality. The gospel is that helium that will fill you and keep you floating and not having to have religion to keep smacking and to keep you trying to go higher. It's all about changing your desires. You see, here's how this usually works with us, okay? We think if we stay real busy with church activities, then that's going to change us. And I'm here to tell you that that's not true. It's not. Only the Spirit of God can change your heart. You see, we need to see the beauty and the mercy and the glory of God that's revealed in the gospel. There is nothing more beautiful for you and me. There is no greater display of love than seeing Christ crucified. There's no greater display of love than that. God loved you that much that he would have his son pay that penalty. And so we need to change our desires. We need to replace them. And so what usually happens is if you have someone that says, I have a problem with fill in the blank, whatever your problem is, all right? And so in your mind, be honest with yourself and identify that sinful struggle that you have most days, all right? And maybe you prayed, God, take away this desire. I don't want that anymore. I don't want to do that or, or go after that. Take away these desires from me, God. Now, let me ask you, does that work? No, it doesn't work. Because you are created with desires. And by the way, the desires aren't evil. What's evil is when we try to find our satisfaction in things that this world has to offer, whether moral or immoral is irrelevant, when we go after our idols to fill us, that's the problem, because you were designed to be filled with desire for God. And so you will never be empty. You can't. By definition, a human will never be empty of desires. It's not possible. God made you as a vessel to be filled with desire, and you will always have desires. The key is not to say, God, empty me. I want to be empty of desires. No, the key is, God, fill me with the desire for you. You replace the evil desires with desire for Jesus. How do you do this? Pray. You read his word. You spend time with him. You fight the evil desires with the gospel. You fight temptation with the gospel. A lot of times we think, oh, I can't say no to temptation. I just, I can't do it. I'll give you an example where, yes, you can. And it's a simple one, but it works in my family. My wife loves to go watch movies. She loves to go and get that popcorn, you know, that really greasy, buttery, really unhealthy kind of popcorn that tastes good at the cinema. Remember that? Okay, she loves that kind of popcorn. But here's what happens. She's identified this, that when she eats that popcorn with all that greasy, buttery goodness, you know what happens to her? She gets a headache, a really bad migraine headache. And so there's something about this cinema of butter and cheese or whatever it is on that. 
it just, her body can't respond well to it, and she gets a bad headache. And she has seen this, it's like clockwork. If she eats a popcorn, she gets a headache in the movie. And so guess what she does now? She doesn't get the popcorn. She sneaks it in her purse. From home that has, you know, none of the other stuff, you know, from the theater. And so she has this desire, popcorn. Her heart yearns for this popcorn, but it yearns to not have a headache more. And so she would rather not have the headache, and so she will push the popcorn aside because she wants something more to feel good. You see, when we have temptation, we fight it with the beauty of Jesus crucified for you. You need to want Jesus and his glory and his presence more than that fleeting, sinful pleasure. And so we must be captivated by something more beautiful, more glorious, more impacting, more satisfying than that sin. That sin's not going to satisfy you. Forget it. Forget that. You can have Jesus. He will satisfy you. And so you must focus on two things, on your guilt and on God's glory. When you focus on your guilt and how you don't deserve it, and you focus on his glory with the gospel, it leads to transformation. And so focusing on your guilt plus God's glory equals transformation. Every day, we pray, we meditate, we spend time with him. Our desire for him increases, and it begins to replace the desires for selfish, fleeting pleasures. The gospel will change how you behave, if you will internalize it and live it. The gospel is what brings us close to Jesus, and it's what maintains us staying close to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in this moment, and just for a, just for a second, just respond. The reality is that some of you in this room probably have never responded to Jesus. You have never once repented and believed. And you can do so today. You can say, Jesus, please forgive me. I know that I don't deserve it, but thank you for giving it to me. Thank you for my salvation. And you can respond right now. And just, just come let me know so I can meet with you and encourage you in your growth. Others of you have received Christ, but maybe you're not living it Maybe you're finding just too much pleasure in fleeting things, not enough of your joy in Christ. He'll take you back. That's what God does. He is merciful and patient and kind and longs to be close to you. That is why Jesus came. Father, we thank you for giving us this time to look at your word and to understand the gospel. Help us to remember these four words, God, man, Christ, and response. For these are your words. This is your gospel. Help us to remember it. Help us to tell others about it. Help us to think on it every day. And let it change us for your glory. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that Jesus now offers us. We ask this in his name. Amen.
You rose to life. 